Our sermon passage uh, today is from the Gospel of John, um, and this is actually the first sermon in our sermon series, True and Better, the Gospel of John, that we'll be in for the next few months. We'll be looking specifically at the Gospel of John, going through chapter by chapter uh, to see and, and learn who Jesus is based on what's there. And so we'll begin this morning where the Gospel of John begins, chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll be looking at the first five verses. So turn with me if you have your Bible in front of you, or the words will actually be on the screen for you. Uh, Here it is, Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. This is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that's been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for here in these five verses, the span of just a few sentences, you show us the beauty and the grandeur and the majesty of who Jesus is. And you train us by faith to, 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 to trace the line back not just even to the birth of, of the man, Jesus Christ, but back to the very beginning to know that your purposes for us in love um, are older <laughs> than our world. They're even older than our sin. So I pray in these moments, God, that you would move by your Holy Spirit to show us uh, Jesus all the more and give us faith to respond um, and to receive the grace from you that we need. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In a lot of ways, the Gospel of John, if you read through it, all 21 chapters, is kind of like this long courtroom drama. I love courtroom dramas. I was a big fan of the original Law and Order series. You know, half the half the episodes were um, were ba- based on the uh, the investigation of a case, and the rest of the episode was the prosecution of it. Uh, so the Gospel of John is like this uh, courtroom drama that we get to see in the first 18 verses of which we just read the first five, are like the attorney's opening statement. Um, And the attorney comes forth, the attorney in in this metaphor (laughs) being the gospel writer of John, John, um, and the prosecuting attorney tells us what he's going to show us before he shows it to us. As you read through, we see these interactions with Jesus and the world around him throughout, but he tells us in the first 18 verses where he's going with all these stories that he's about to tell. So it's like a courtroom drama. Well, who's on trial? Well, in a sense, Jesus is. The entire gospel shows us this back and forth, Jesus interacting with the world around him, with religious leaders, with with regular ordinary uh, people. Uh, you see Jesus in Jerusalem interacting with the world around him. And as you go through, it gets increasingly hostile, these discussions, and they focus in and center on who Jesus is and what he's up to. Jesus has caused a stir in his world, and the question is, who is this guy? And if you read through the Gospel of John, which I invite you all to do, we'll be in it for the next few months, it, it would be good to Read through it a few times to get uh, kind of our mind around where it goes. You'll see that the Gospel of John has twists and turns. It has intrigue and even deception. And at the end, or near the end, it seems that Jesus actually loses the case. 
He's put to death as a criminal. But the final verdict, to get ahead of ourselves a bit, the final verdict belongs to God. When Jesus is resurrected and vindicated, defeating death, and giving his disciples the call to lead his church in love. But again, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. So let's step back and start at the beginning. Because like I said, what we have here in this first chapter is like the opening statement in court. But the interesting thing about this opening statement is this. It's a song. It doesn't just begin with words and sentences. It begins with a song of worship. And this song here, these 18 verses, has us confess and sing along uh, to a number of different things. Who Jesus is, what he's up to, and what that means for us. Now, I don't want to rush through this opening statement, this song. So what we're going to do is this week we're going to focus in on the very first uh, of these, in the first five verses, who Jesus is. So let's walk through these verses together and let's find some things not just to believe, but let's also find the God who calls us to life in Him. Uh, And that brings us to our first section, the Word, the Word. The song begins by taking us back, way back, to the very beginning. In fact, back, if this even makes sense, before the beginning of all things. Notice the very first verse, in the beginning was the Word the Word. Now, Word, this was a loaded term in the first century. Uh, The Gospel of John was written near the end of the first century AD, probably around 90 AD. And if you were in that world at the time, uh, which was majority Greek speaking in the Roman Empire, and you said Word, which was Lagos, if you want to impress your friends, um, everyone would have known that word and what you meant. Um, It was a word that was used all over the place by a wide variety of people for religious Jews and for philosophically minded uh, Greeks and Romans. Word was a term that referred to um, the basic fundamental thing that held all things together, the thing that that makes our world uh, make sense. In the ancient world, some people would talk about the Lagos word, uh, almost like the force in Star Wars, if you're a fan. It's the basic life force that binds everything together. It's a word that pointed to the idea that our world's not chaos, that at its core, there's an order and there's a sensibility that ties everything together and that's leading everything to a purpose. Now, this is the term that John uses here in this very first verse to introduce us as readers of his gospel to Jesus. And I think uh, he uses this term out of all the things he could have you know, used to describe who Jesus is. I think he uses this term because he's telling us this, that the story he's about to tell us in his gospel, where it goes after this for these next 21 chapters, um, this story is not something that just began in his own mind. It's not something that began yesterday. It's not even something that had started with the birth of the man, Jesus Christ, into our world. He uses this term word and identifies Jesus as the word who was with God in the beginning, who was God, because he's telling us that God's redeeming purposes that have come to us, to our world in Jesus, stretch beyond the edge of time. And his love for us is something that permeates all things. As I prayed at the very beginning, God's love for us is older than our world. It's older than our sin. He has set His affections on us 
from eternity past. And I think that becomes clearer when we see what Jesus, or what John says about the Word, about Jesus. Look at verse 1 again. He says, the Word was in the beginning, was in the beginning. Notice the tense. He doesn't say, in the beginning, God created the Word. He doesn't say, in the beginning, the Word began. He says, in the beginning was the Word. When time began, the Word already was. He's clearly separating the Word, Jesus, from our created world. It's almost like he's drawing the line. Everything above the line is divine. Everything above the line is God. Everything below the line is created. He's placing Jesus, the Word, above that line to let us know. Um, Jesus is no ordinary figure. He's no ordinary man. Um, He's clearly separating the Word from our created world and associating Him with God. He says that explicitly in the next Uh, The next phrase, notice he says the word was with God, with God. Now the Greek word here is a a word that can mean with, but also towards. Um, So basic to the existence of the word to Jesus is this orientation to God, this relationship with God, which leads us to the next thing he says, the word was God. So while the word can clearly be distinguished in some way from God. He was with God, as it said. He's not separate from God. In fact, he is God. Now, we are wading in deep waters of mystery here, even in the very first verse, the Gospel of John. This is the basic idea of the mystery of Trinity. Um, that there's a sense of unity and oneness, that what can be said about God can be said about Jesus. And Jesus makes this clear throughout his ministry, as we'll see in the Gospel of John. He says later on that he and the Father are one. He says later on uh, to his disciple Thomas that if Thomas has seen Jesus, that he's seen the Father, that Jesus reveals who God is and what he's up to. But there's also um, this sense of distinction. He makes it clear the Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Word. There's distinction And there's identification. They share the same identity as God, yet remain distinct enough to say at the same time that the Word was with God. Now again, there's great mystery here. There's great mystery here, but of course there is. We're talking about eternal things. We're talking about transcendent things. We're not just things. The transcendent God who created all things. There's mystery here, but for the Christian, mystery is not a cuss word. For us, we should expect that when we as limited, finite creatures are called into the presence of God to think and speak about the eternal God, that we will experience this baffling encounter um, that stretches our minds in a sense. For us, it's helpful, I think, to to realize this, that mystery doesn't mean that we don't know anything. Um, A lot of times when people encounter the doctrine of the Trinity, when we start talking about how Jesus is divine and human at the same time, we we back away. We're nervous because it feels, uh, like I said, it feels like we're wading into deep waters and we can't swim. But mystery doesn't mean we don't know anything. It means we don't know everything. We should expect our minds to be baffled by the grandeur of God. After all, He's God. 
We are limited. He is not. We are finite. He is infinite. We are creatures. He is the creator. But here's the good news about this. Here's the good news about this. We are not talking about a God we cannot know. We are not talking about a God who is so transcendent that there's an unbridgeable gap where we cannot get to Him and He cannot get to us. We are talking about a God who is utterly transcendent, who has condescended to us, who has revealed Himself to us. Not simply so we can know facts about Him, that's not the point, but so that we can receive life from Him. And yes, we're talking about things that are ultimately beyond our understanding, eternal things. But it's worth mentioning here, as we feel like maybe we're wading into that deep water, that if you read the Gospel of John in ancient Greek, he's not using technical terms. He's not using big, complicated philosophical language. He's using the most elementary of basic Greek. He's using everyday language. Because the truth about who Jesus is doesn't just belong to the people who have read the most books or who have the most knowledge. The truth about who Jesus is belongs, He belongs to all of us. So what we're encountering here is God condescending to reveal Himself to us in human language. When John inspired by the Holy Spirit, uses logos, word, to describe who Jesus is and speaks of Jesus as being pre-existent, the creator of all things. Uh, It speaks of Jesus as being with God and also God. It's like trying to squeeze the truth of God into our limited human language. Uh, the, the, The theologian John Calvin in the 16th century, he compared it to this. It's like a, a mother, a new mother with her baby. You know, the mother could speak all day in her own language, and the baby wouldn't understand a word, right? He would just hear noises. But the mother communicates so many things to the baby in the way the baby can understand. Through touch, through tone, through care, through providing. God reveals himself to us in the same way, in a way that's fitted for us to understand, but in a way, in our own human language, that leads us to realize that we're approaching something uh, beyond our, uh, our complete comprehension. And so God speaks to us in a way that is fitted to lead us to Him in worship. And that's true in worship. It's true of things like the Lord's Supper and baptism. In the Lord's Supper, ordinary bread and ordinary wine or grape juice is set apart from its ordinary use to be a means of God giving us His grace. Um, these very ordinary things are used by God to communicate something incredibly uh, powerful about who He is to us. Same thing's true of Scripture, the use of human language for God to show us who He is. It might confound us sometimes, it might baffle us, but it's God using our ordinary human language to show us who He is. And it's true of the words used here to describe Jesus in John chapter 1. So know this, know this. If if your eyes have started to glaze over in the last few minutes, that even when it feels like we're wading into deep waters and talking about Jesus and who he is, that we aren't just talking about abstract truths. We aren't just listing a bunch of facts on a page. We are talking about a person. 
a personal God, not an impersonal force, an impersonal being, a personal God who has created us in love for love and is leading us in love. A God who has shown us who He is through His actions in our world and calls us not just to know about Him, but to commune with Him in relationship, to find Him as our source of life, our source of confidence, our source of joy and thriving. And so for us, the nature of God is not a mathematical equation. If it feels like that right now, that's not what God is intending to, to give us something to, to make our minds puzzle. It's not an equation to be solved. The reality of who God is is a, a, a reality that is uh, meant to lead us to bow on our knees and worship Him because He is worthy of worship in His transcendence. And so, the Word. <laughs> That's that whole section. Jesus is the Word who was at the beginning, who was with God, who was God. Well, what else can be said about Him in these verses? Look at, uh, look at verse 3 uh, in this next section, Creator and Giver of Life. In, in verse 3, John writes that the Word who was already who already was in the beginning, who was with God and was God, is the one through whom all things were made. Then he doubles down and he says it in two separate ways to make it clear what he's saying. He made all things. John is telling us in all the ways that he possibly can this. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. If that's not clear, he says here that in Jesus there was life. Not that life was something he had, but it's something that was in him. Again, this is ordinary language that is grasping at these incomprehensible transcendent truths. It's God, the incomprehensible God, transcending or condescending to reveal himself to us. Now, life, this concept of life, is a very important one for John. He speaks about it a whopping 36 times in this gospel, that Jesus has life, that he's come to give us life, and it's, it's vitality, it's thriving, it's flourishing. And that life was what? Look what it says here, that life was the light of all mankind. And so these concepts are, are weaving together, this idea of life and, and light that comes into darkness. All through these first few verses, uh, if you know the, God, uh, the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, John is using words and phrases that harken back to that very first chapter in the book of Genesis. And what's the very first thing in Genesis 1, if you know it, if you look back, what is the very first thing that it, it, the Bible shows God doing? The very first thing God does is speaks a word. He speaks a word, and what does he say? Let there be light, and there was light. The arrival of Jesus in John chapter 1, think of it this way, is God's let there be light in the new creation. Our world is a place of chaos and darkness, um, and the arrival of Jesus coming into our world is the let there be light that rushes into the darkness of our world. It's the dawning of His plan of redemption come to life. In our world, in the darkness, in the chaos of our time, God has said, let there be light in the sending of Jesus Christ. 
But as we all know, light is not something that stands still. It's the very nature of light to what shine forth. In verse 5, it tells John tells us this, this light doesn't simply exist. It's a light that shined in the darkness. And what's it say? The darkness has not overcome it. Some translations say the darkness has not comprehended it, overcome it, and comprehended it. And the sense is this, the light has come into our world and has utterly confounded the darkness. The, the beauty and grandeur of this light is something that the darkness cannot understand whatsoever. The darkness doesn't know how to make heads or tails of it. And if we read through the Gospel of John, we see, as I mentioned at the beginning, there's these increasingly hostile interactions with Jesus and especially the religious leaders, but all kinds of different people throughout his ministry and throughout his life. We find people over and over again confounded at who he is. They can't make heads or tails of him. And that's what God, John is saying here in these, these very simple first verses. The light has come into the world and the darkness has not comprehended it or overcome it. Now it's worth noting, I think, that John says here that the light shines in the darkness. Now up, in that, up until now, he's dealt entirely in the past tense. He's talked about the creation of the world, those kinds of things. In him was life. But here he says that light shines, present tense, in the darkness. Here he switches to the present tense because he is bridging the gap between this, these transcendent ideas that he's been talking about, the Word, about God creating all things, those kind of things. He's bridging the gap into the here and now, the reality of what has happened in true time <laughs> in Jesus Christ. The light shines right now into the darkness, and the darkness has not, has not, and will not overcome it. For us, this is a foreshadowing of where things go next. And we'll touch way more on this next week and the weeks after. But this is a foreshadowing. The light has shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, of where he goes next. Because like I said at the very beginning, if you read straight through this gospel, it has twists, it has turns, it has intrigue, it has deception. And if this gospel is like a trial, like I said, it looks like at the end that Jesus loses the case in his crucifixion, the darkness seems to overcome the light. The darkness seems to win. The word that speaks seems to be silenced. But the final verdict belongs to God. And that final verdict is the resurrection of Jesus. When the Word, in whom was life, in Him was life, and that life, the light of all mankind, when that light comes into the darkness of the tomb and empties it, empties death of all its power. So, for us today, whatever chaos or darkness we may find ourselves in, we find at the uh, <laughs> more powerful than that chaos and darkness, the Word who was in the beginning, the Word that speaks even today, the light that shines even today, the life that can be ours even today. So for you and for me, the darkness can feel overwhelming. It can feel often that the darkness does overcome our world can feel chaotic. It may not feel like there's an underlying purpose in our lives. It may feel like we're wandering around aimlessly. 
It may not feel like life is ours. It may feel like there's a different story written for us. But the good news of Jesus Christ is this, that He has not left us in darkness, that He has not left us in chaos, that the Word who was with God and who was God, the Word who was in the beginning, um, to get ahead of myself a little bit into next week's passage, has become flesh and dwelt among us. And He has shown us His glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of the Father, and He is full of grace and truth. And through His work, He has given us, as it says in, in verse 12, He has given us the right to be children of God, daughters and sons of God, to lift us out of the darkness, to bring us out of the chaos, and to give us life and vitality. So, may we, together, be baffled and amazed and overjoyed at this Jesus who's not just some mere religious leader or some guy with good ideas, but the Jesus who is God. The God who has pursued us in grace upon grace and baffled by this grace. Let's worship and enjoy Him, which is what we were created to do. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that uh, we can wade into these deep waters of talking about who You are but not be lost because we aren't talking about abstract facts. We're talking about you, the God who holds us. So thank you for revealing yourself to us in our language, for engaging our minds in this way. Um, and, and, And move upon us, Lord, to not see you and who you are as some mathematical equation to be solved, but to see you as, 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 uh, majestic and beautiful and holy and transcendent to see you as God, the God who loves us. Center our hearts on you and make us people who reflect who you are. I pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, the Word. Amen. Let's sing together.